0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Retro Time Podcast. I'm Jeremy,
1: and I'm Derek.
0: Hello, Derek. Hey, it's hey good nice to see be you. with you again after Thanksgiving. How was your Thanksgiving, man? You did all all your dips. You dip dipped all your all your dips. All the stuff for turkey. You turkey yeah, dips. Yeah, man.
1: Unlike last year, we had family in town. My man. wife's sisters in town. She lives here now. We had some turkey. We had some um all the good stuff, dude. We had uh all the good dips, macaroni. And I did uh, did a little mm-hmm. dipping. I did a little dipping. Gravy little dippin'. was on
0: point yep. this year. So, you know, everybody out there in Retro Atlanta, you Retro Timers, you, you've heard us reference Derek and his dips. But what I think a lot of you may not know is that in the office, Derek is known for a dip day presentation that he does where he gives a history of dips. It's, like, it's, a, it's a satirical uh, slide deck presentation where Derek uh, talks about the history of dips and do's and don'ts of dips. The do's and don'ts of dipping. It's a very good. We we should actually do like a retro bite one day, Derek, where you give the Dutch the, the the dip day presentation, and we can put it on the internet. And uh, I think it'd be goddamn hilarious. We should absolutely do that one day. That's and, one of the best uh, ideas you've ever had. When you listen to Derek's presentation, I'm gonna spoil it, but the history of the dip, uh, Derek's uh, infatuation with dips, was Thanksgiving Day. I don't know when you were a kid or recently. I don't know when it was. Anyway, Derek, Derek, uh, Thanksgiving Day is this historical beginning of Derek's infatuation with dips, and that's why I bring it up today. Very true. So uh, last time we... (laughs) It's funny because in our episode we recorded it before Thanksgiving, and I said, have a good Thanksgiving, but then we posted it after Thanksgiving. (laughs) We sure did. So that didn't make any sense. So anyway, (laughs) we're back post-Thanksgiving. Happy to be here. Me too. Happy to be back with you, Derek. I hope you had a wonderful, happy... Uh, restful Thanksgiving break. Mm-hmm. I gave I thanks. Know I did gave many thanks. All right, so um, we're back and we are talking about a little interesting topic today, a listener requested topic mm-hmm. by uh, number one fan, fan of the show, Mr. Doug Poirier. Uh, Derek, why don't you why don't you lay it on us? What did, what did uh, what did what did Doug
1: want us to talk about? First of all, thank you, Doug. We appreciate it. Doug wanted us to talk a little bit about how software is sometimes treated like manufacturing in the planning phase, Mm. the software development phase. It's measured that way. Some of the pitfalls and possibilities of that.
0: I love it. So, you know, if you think about manufacturing, the way that you build something, right? A lot of upfront research costs, a lot of upfront upfront design to make sure you get it right. Mm -hmm. Because once you start to build that thing, you can't just build one. You can't spend millions of dollars putting a factory together to build one. You got to build a whole bunch. So you got to make your money back, right? So when you set up new manufacturing facility, you've got to invest all this money, millions of dollars. Get everything set up because you can't just manufacture one, test it, see if it works, go back and change everything, change sure. the whole manufacturing facility and the whole pipeline and all that stuff. So you got to do all that stuff up front. Make sure you get it right before you release, which I think is very much where our waterfall mentality of software came from. It's very likely. Would you agree? That's kind of where that came from, if I had to guess, right? These big companies that were financing these big software projects were probably also financing big, you know... Machines or cars or tanks or whatever. The government at one point was probably a large uh, benefactor paying for a lot of these software companies to build these things back in the day. And I imagine that's where it came from. Yeah. Perhaps we should have done some research before this episode (laughs) to see if that's the case. Uh, Well, I know that uh, the idea (laughs) of waterfall. I know the
1: idea of waterfall came from a misinterpretation of a government description of how software should be built. And It was interesting because it showed the waterfall and that we all see if we Google waterfall. But then it also uh, highlighted important aspects to software that can't be missed, which are early testing, early validation, constant validation. You know, like all this stuff that ended up becoming part of the agile movement later was there. It's just Mm -hmm. people take what they want. It's interesting.
0: I that makes sense, though. The government wrote that because that's, uh, you know, clearly, when when did the government write this? Was it in the 70s, 80s? 60s? I think the 70s. Right, might be the 70s, 70s-ish. yeah. So yeah. we were in the Cold War, mm-hmm. midst of the Cold War, making millions of tanks and planes and all these things, right? And post-World War II where we had these all these ships and all these tanks and, and everything having to be built by the United States government. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure people writing this had a lot to do with all that previous stuff. And that, that probably bled through if I had to guess. I don't know. I wasn't there. I would, yeah. I, I haven't mean, read yeah. a book, like I said. Probably should have done some research before this. <laughs> um, but that's really a fascinating thing, though, where you take this and, um, you know, uh, apply that to this new thing. It's a relatively new field, totally unknown. What do you do? You do what you know. Yeah. Right? And what you know is manufacturing. And that's that's kind of where I think that, that kind of came from, which is, is pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting too to think the processes that they go through as well and the expectations that they have for software, it's unrealistic at the very beginning. This, the scenario your team is in, your team that you're listening right now, um, uh, it's different than my team. You have different people, different skill sets. You have different mission, different goal different technology, all that stuff's different. You could say that there are some core principles that when applied to software development, and that's a lot of people have been building these over the years, they write books on it, they make money because they come up with these new things, um, these new ideas. And Check fact, out the we had episode
0: a, we did with Dan North where he talked about Cupid, there's one. That's one right there, yep, our
1: main man Dan, I call him. Um, Dan. But... When you don't have that expertise and you haven't spent years in software failing at using manufacturing principles to build it, what do you end up doing? You, use, you do what you know, like Jeremy said. And that isn't something that, it's not somebody doing something maliciously to try to make software people upset or, or make a team burn out or anything like that. Just a misunderstanding of the entire field. Um, so I wanted to break that down with you today, Jeremy, I want to break down what is different about this field. Let's start with the, the comparisons to design that, uh, that we have for software. So when you design, let's say a, um, a refrigerator, okay, you need to get the designs in place. You need to set them out. You, you test the designs as you go with mock-ups, right? As you go. hmm Mockups, yep. but on the very first day when you're in that first meeting, what do you, what do they give? They give a um, they give an estimate as to when they think the refrigerator design will be ready for v- validation. That first prototype it seems eerily similar to what our teams are asked to do. And then you move forward, and then you test in the prototype, and then you refine it, and you refine it, you refine it. That's all similar to software to me. Once it gets past that and starts being pushed, now you start getting into manufacturing where you're essentially doing the same thing over and over and measuring your returns. You know, did I get the money for the refrigerator and is it functioning the way I want it to? Are people really complaining about it? Whatever. That's part of it is a little similar too. But the first part, design, that portion of it, how that's managed. The, the freedom people have to really explore and investigate things, the freedom they have to design and, and talk to other groups and all this stuff, a lot of that stuff is the freedom is no longer applied. They ask you for a date when it's when the whole thing's going to be done and you only build one software. You don't build 20 softwares, you build one. And so at the end of the day, when the software is ready, you've gone through the process of designing this whole time. It's an right. it's a it's a it's a design you know in my my view it's a big design activity. What do you think, Jeremy?
0: Right. See, so here's I would I, well I guess I, I I agree with everything you're saying. I guess like I have an, an interesting way to think about it. So, in let's use the, the the refrigerator example, right? You have a team who probably goes out and does some market research. They understand what people want. What type of what type of refrigerator would you you know what's the right size? It's just, is there a standard? Hole that everybody has in their house that this refrigerator has to fit in. Mm -hmm. Is there a standard socket that it needs to plug into, or connects to water and these things, right? Um, You know, do you want this feature or that feature? All these other weird features that you could think of that you would put in a refrigerator. Apparently, people want touch screens in their refrigerator now. I don't know. I don't get it. Um, But anyway, so somebody goes in and they they do that work, right? They do a design phase. They do some prototype, like you said. They do. A, a prototype, like they build something. They go out and they build it. And then they end up with essentially one. Oh, interesting. That's an right? interesting way to think and, about and it. And just like you said, with software, you build one software. So I think <gasps> what what's interesting though is the way that you deliver the product to people is the only thing that's really different, right? Mm. And that's where the manufacturing part comes in. True. So somebody you know, when you're building hardware and you're building software, up until the point where it needs to be mass produced that's where it becomes a different thing, it's right? So like you said, you build software, you, you release it once, you have one software, and everybody uses that same exact copy or not even a copy, whatever you would, one instance, right? Everybody uses that one instance. But with hardware, you can't have everybody share a refrigerator. You have to make a million refrigerators and you have to make those refrigerators as cheap as possible to manufacture so that you make a profit off of them. So that design phase costs you some amount of money let's say you, you had a budget of a million dollars for R&D to design the perfect refrigerator. That million dollars is not going to cover the manufacturing of a million copies of the refrigerator. right? And yeah. so that's where all those lean manufacturing principles and waste and all these things come in, the Toyota stuff, right? Like let's make the cheapest possible, high, best quality thing with, by eliminating as much waste as possible. When it comes to software, you can, re- you can release a new version of that refrigerator on day two. Yeah. You can figure out, oh wait, we were wrong. We got to fix a bug, got to do something else, blah, blah, blah. And then there. Now you've now the difference there though is when you want to release a new version of the refrigerator, it's not as simple as just going and, and figuring out, oh, I, I want to make it an inch bigger. Yeah, right. Right? We realized we were an inch too small. Now we gotta make it an inch bigger. Oh, well, it's but uh, it just needs to be an inch bigger. Right? If you're a software, you click click a button and it goes through the pipeline and it gets pushed to production. But in a manufacturing facility, you've got to change every machine to make that copy an inch bigger now, right? You might even have to reimburse people because they're upset that like the old one just doesn't fit in their, in their hole or whatever it was. Right. And so, um, I think that's the main difference when I think about this, the difference from manufacturing and software, it's just the releasing of the version for the people, the product is where it's different. The research and design phase isn't that dissimilar. You're still doing a lot of the same things. Um, Clearly, you're building a thing versus typing some code, and that's different. But the design phase, the, the research phase, uh, what people want, what does the customer want, what makes a great refrigerator, what makes them happy, um, it's just when you want to actually get them to people. That's where the manufacturing piece is different. I don't know.
1: Dude, I, have, I want to throw an idea at you. I want to see how you think about it. Um, software as we build it today, when we're talking about software, we're talking about software delivered to the web or to an app store where people can consume it. In a very simple way, you know. like The app store could be maybe considered more of a manufacturing thing. But you're not actually making more copies of something. then pulling it from the app store creates another copy for them to use. So It's kind of not really the same thing. But think back to uh, your youth, Jeremy. Take Let's take a trip back. Um, I'm going to make the take a trip back sound. All right. Now we're back in Jeremy's childhood. Um, you wake up on a Saturday morning and your buddy comes over and what is the only thing you want to do? Play Nintendo. So you go over, you grab That's Super it. Mario Brothers 3, you put it in, boom. You get to level 3 and you realize, man, I really wish they would have added another hammer or another whistle. Could always use another whistle. How similar was software development in yeah. those days yes. as uh, to manufacturing?
0: Absolutely. Right. Exactly. So in that case, how do you update Mario three? Yeah, you can't. No, you, you got to make Mario 4. a new version. You got to make Mario four. Right. Um, so you can't just fix that one bug and say, oh, well, we, we screwed up. We should have had an extra whistle. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to make an entirely new thing. Um, I mean, can you imagine having like version 1.2 or 1.3 of like a Mario cartridge or something? It'd be like the weirdest thing. Each, each like image is a little bit different or something. I don't know. That'd be kind of cool to think about, I know. but you're right. I mean, in that case, like, you know, it, it was almost, it was, it was manufacturing. You had to manufacture those cartridges, right? You had to manufacture those discs. You had to manufacture all of those things. And so requirements changing late in the game screwed up all of that stuff. Yeah, because you're, right? playing, you're playing when it. In the got to be, when the internet came around, it got to be something you could release via uh, digitally and everybody could consume it immediately. Those limitations completely went away. And you could absolutely change something and make yourself maybe a day or two late. If you change something and someone at the very end said, oh, we got a bad, uh, you know, change an extra, um, change an extra or add an extra whistle to, to Super Mario Brothers 3 you know potentially there was an area where you could maybe make that change but once something happened and you started sending that cop that data and it had to be imprinted on the on the motherboard or whatever you call the little you know the the, mm-hmm. the circuit board of the cartridge it's too late you can't do it anymore you can't make 500 copies of super mario brothers and then suddenly say wait i wait we should have added an extra whistle you know absolutely um so I think that may, maybe the internet is what really changed the way we need to think about software, but, but, you know, that's probably part of the problem, right? People that are maybe in charge higher up, a lot of these companies, and maybe this is true for, for, uh, you know, um, enterprise, big, big enterprise IT teams. M- maybe this isn't as true for IT or smaller startups where people are tend to be like, you know, more progressive in how they think about software. Yeah. But they're used to that way twenty thirty years ago. I mean, the internet is not that old. it isn't right? Um, you know the way we think about the internet at least is not that old. know internet has been around for a long time, but commercial you know internet software and the on the web is relatively new. Um, you know, think about iPhones, man. You didn't have mobile apps until eight years <laughs> eight Yeah, or they were like right? these
1: weird um impossible to use apps and with a tiny little screen, you know.
0: Yeah. And so you didn't have that like instantly on demand update. You can make an update next day. You can make another update, another update, push to the app store or whatever. Or, you know, even if we had computer software, it was probably on a CD. It was probably on a disc that you had to actually install. And again, that manufacturing stuff came into play. So it's all relatively new. And I think that's probably that main difference. And the interesting thing, though, is that. You know, you mentioned this whole idea of the the um, the, the government, uh, the U.S. government wrote the waterfall principles, and they included a lot of those t- those those things that came out came in eventually into the Agile Manifesto, right? What um, mm-hmm. was it like? A, we 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 embrace change late in the game or whatever it is. Um, right. They they probably encouraged that up into a point, but at a certain point, that change was then more harmful than it was you know, added, maybe that change was more harmful to the process than it was adding value to the user.
1: It's a limitation uh, of the and medium. Nowadays, today,
0: it doesn't matter. It's, it's the
1: medium. Like, mm-hmm. that's what I'm starting to realize having this conversation with you. Our medium is the internet, regardless of whether you're, um, you know, you're sharing files or music or whatever, like, that's what it is. Uh, websites can mm-hmm. be updated, like, almost instantly, and they're back and running. So the medium is what changes things. It's interesting, that concept of like, over time, our core medium has changed. And so, and our brains didn't change. Everyone's brains didn't change exactly at the same time. we need to think differently about this. Guys, we need, hold on, we need to think differently about this. There are people trying to shout in your face that we're in a new world, we need to do things differently. And still, it's like, wait, 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 that's not safe. And see, the thing is, yeah. I think that great software can be safely changed as quickly as possible. If you can change it, that means you can be wrong. You could be wrong the first time and keep changing it and changing it and changing it. If you could safely change it, that means that you're not affecting people who are using it right now. And so right. you couldn't do that back in the day. You could only safely change it up until a certain point, And then manufacturing got involved and you got... You know, you start to deal with serious issues, um, logistical issues.
0: You know, we should uh, call up Elon Musk, see if he can come on the show, because uh, I'd love to get his perspective coming from like a company like PayPal, where he wrote the software going into manufacturing. And I wonder if he tried to apply some of these principles and how some of these principles may or may not have worked in manufacturing and vice versa. Oh, interesting. So like having
1: the opposite view of it, like you're a software person going into hardware. How would you apply The principles. Right.
0: Right. And what, and so we should call up Elon Musk. I'll I'll send him a tweet. Yeah. Tweet at him. I'll Um, tweet at him. He'd love to come
1: on the show. I mean, you know.
0: Elon, if you're listening, uh, check us out at Retro Time Pod on Twitter and uh, tweet at us. Um, Yeah. Any of our 50 followers could, uh, you know, like that tweet. Um, So anyway, I think that that's an interesting idea though. Um, this idea of hardware versus software and how it can change. I don't, I don't think they like, again, it's just like the, the idea of the design piece I think is, 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 is identical. I don't think it's really that different. I think you're I will right. caveat that by saying I've never be, worked in manufacturing specifically. Yeah. Right. I <laughs> I'd know. work for a manufacturing company, but I built software for a manufacturing company and I have experience on like the shop floor and things like that. But, uh, you know, very very cursory <laughs> understanding of manufacturing, but I think like in in this case though, um, it's the release of the piece that that is really the main differentiator there. So I don't know. Yeah, fascinating stuff.
1: I guess I guess the last thing you know that I'd want to touch on really around this topic is like, what can we do to try to emphasize this difference to the people we work with? Can we yell at them? Because I don't want to do that.
0: You know, I've noticed uh my experience that doesn't tend to work okay. often. Okay. Right. Fair enough. The right it works with the right person, but generally those people aren't in charge. Yeah. So, you know, um <laughs> I don't have any ideas. I think um, you know, really the interesting thing there is like is is having is proving that you can release often safely. Right? So yeah. what what are some ways to prove to your stakeholders or your product team or whomever that this will not affect something? You know, it it, it definitely depends on the industry that you're in. If you're dealing with, you know, the federal government and you're a government contractor, there's probably rules and regulations on when things can be changed or not. You know, some things certainly you probably have some flexibility, some things you certainly can't Um but you know, again, it's sort of that thing where, like, that's a regulation, that's a legal constraint, that you, a contractual obligation that you may or may not be able to change with your stakeholders. Yeah. So maybe you wrote a contract said we won't want these amount of changes because it's going to mess with our business. Um, and you know, you could always renegotiate that, I guess, if you if it came to that. I don't know. Um, but anyway, I don't know. I honestly, this is sort of one of those things where I think like relationships come into play and can you build a relationship enough to where they trust you and your team? Have you built that trust? Um, Is there trust? If they don't trust you, clearly they won't let you. If they do trust you, maybe you have, maybe you have a partner that can then influence other people and you could, you could approach it that way. Um, But I think, you know, it comes down to trust perhaps and, and being able to prove that this stuff works and maybe that you could set up an experiment and see if you could do something, you know, X amount of times in a certain amount of time to see if there were some, you know, consequences measure that somehow
1: you know the trust thing jumps out i mean we had we worked with some people who had a high risk tolerance um i mean sorry low risk tolerance so they they were very very uh you know they would always see every risk around every corner and we you know we worked with some people on our previous project they had me a lot of times needing to present theoretical reasons why it was impossible for there to be a risk here or the risk was at such a low point that it didn't really matter. I would highly recommend anybody on here that understands their system well to simply sit down and write down every way the system can change. What, what impacts the change? Where does the change come from? And how the change gets applied in production. So, for example... Somebody notices a bug in the system. We have to correct the backend because it's not connecting to the database correctly or something like that. Or we have mis- misappropriate or the query is wrong um, because we have uh, new data and we're not in, you know incorporating it. Well, that's a specific scenario that you gotta know about your system. And we don't have like we know we not den- generally tend to know the features of the system but we don't sit down and write down all the ways it can change down to here's a scenario that is kind of weird. I have to change this specific thing and it impacts 10 other teams. So I can't make it quickly. Well, that's when we need to work on. If you can't make it Mm. quickly, we got to figure out how to make sure that And we can talk about this another time, but there are mechanisms in software where you basically invert the dependency and all of a sudden they rely on you. You don't rely on them. So you can make your change whenever, keep it backwards compatible. Boom, Mm -hmm. there you're moving. You know, you keep moving. So there's like, this is a more technical idea, but I just, I I highly recommend you if you don't know the way your system changes, sit down with your team or, or virtually, write it down, go through it ask questions, be speculative and be theoretical about this because otherwise you're not gonna be able to convince anybody anything just by like giving a very small number of examples that have occurred. And if, but if you do have a a list of, here's all the things that have happened in the system, that's helpful too. So anyway, a lot on that, but that's what I recommend.
0: Well, so that, and I mean, I'm sure that, I don't know, you're the developer, but there, there's probably all kinds of you know, guides on how to build, you know, things so that you can do continuous delivery. So if you introduce a bug, you can, you know, introduce a fix immediately or quickly. So that it's very little risk to the larger user population, right? As a whole. I'm sure there's that stuff out there. There's a book called Continuous
1: Delivery that defines how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. There you go.
0: Yeah. So that kind of stuff I think is, is that's the main, that's the main difference, right? Between manufacturing. You cannot do continuous delivery in manufacturing. It's impossible.
1: Here's the thing. Um, is it impossible to someone from software who goes to manufacturing and starts to think of things we've never thought of before, how to automate certain types of manufacturing? Yeah. Look at additive. Look at the way that works. Like right. imagine well, that that's just, being yeah, used.
0: Ah, uh, Yeah. You see, now that is interesting because that is is essentially your, uh, that could be your continuous delivery, right? Like yeah. additive, 3D printing, things like that where you don't need a machine with a specific die to cut out a frame for a refrigerator that's 23 inches, Mm -hmm. right? You decide you want your refrigerator to be 24 inches. You just print one that's 24 inches and now they're all, all, everyone coming off the assembly line is not 24 inches. Now, you know, the difference there though, is that all the pieces that fit together with that refrigerator have to also be built in such a way that allows them to change so that they all fit together. So, you know, in the case of 3D printing, I don't know, that's not, I don't know that we're ready for mass scale. I don't know. Honestly, don't know anything about 3D printing. Yeah, I don't know. I know like in in some industries, you know, aviation industry, they're 3D printing some parts, right? Mm -hmm. But there again, like other parts of that engine are still manufactured in a traditional uh, traditional, uh, destructive way where they have, they start with a large piece and weld it down or stamp something or whatever. Yeah. So- anyway you're right that's a very good point though that's a very good point. point 3d printing essentially changes that um, you know and at some point if we like think about this if we all have a 3d printer in our home that can print our, print us a 24 a new 24 inch refrigerator um, we suddenly this whole manufacturing waste and everything else goes away and soft it, it, it's, you're essentially writing software mm-hmm The software, the code then is transplanted to your 3D or sent transplanted, What is the right word, transported via the interwebs to (laughs) your 3D printer to print a a refrigerator. That is essentially software, Mm -hmm. right? The only difference is the the thing that's the the physical thing. And that's like really the the main difference, I think, between, again, between software and hardware is the manufacturing of the copy. Um, If we all had those ways to make our own copy, it would be no different than software. It would be software. You got it, man. That's a fascinating take, Derek. I love that, actually. That's a really interesting do, idea. That's a weird... Imagine that world where, like, everyone has some kind of industrial printer that lets them print everything. That Like, imagine, like, I mean, the it's... logistics problems go away, well, the waste well, goes away. Well,
1: now, now think about, like, where uh, something very near and dear to our hearts, uh, Star Trek's Replicator. Yeah, you're right, baby. So the Replicator is essentially like a 3D printer That's that can a... print anything.
0: From the molecular level. From the molecular level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they've. So that's the case. Why do they still have shipyards building starships, though? Uh, Because I
1: I can answer that question because (laughs) they tried to build a ship with uh, um, a replicator and it was not theoretically possible because of the size. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Don't ask me any more questions. Can you build a bigger replicator? (laughs) You don't build a bigger replicator. It's theoretically impossible. Tachyons. Why? Um, tachyons. I explained that already. <laughs> Jeez, suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Um, anyway, listen. so you're right. I mean, me. in
0: that case, though, it, let's say, like, at some point, <laughs> it's not beyond the realm of possibility to imagine a world where a, 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 a machine can as, uh, assemble something at the molecular level. To I mean everything, everything that we have is essentially made up of molecule. The same molecules. They're just, you know, the same atoms. Rather, they're just, uh, they're just built in different structures to make different things and, and whatever. um. And so if you can take the atoms, put them together. We're going so far off topic. This is right great. Now, this, no, this is, is like, the best. I love it. Anyway, uh, you know, this is a Retro Time uh, <laughs> software podcast episode. We talk about Star Trek and everything. You know right? um, anyway, so um, yeah, at that point though, you're right. Creating a product, a physical product is essentially creating software and there is no difference. Mm-hmm. And that is fascinating to me. I can't wait for that day
1: yeah i mean we could get there you know
0: what what does that mean for black friday no more black friday you could just print everything and show up at your house there's no black friday
1: i mean you know it's funny because at that point what do you sell you know you sell the designs you sell the idea and so the the thing that you have to now protect is the 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 designs around whatever it is you're building or or the key to the thing you know so now you have to build all these like you know oh i yeah i purchased the um you know whatever the the guitar oh cool cool when are you, when are you printing it it's like oh this weekend yeah i got it takes a little while cuz it needs to it needs to <laughs> it's source got a, it's got to warm up it's got to source wood from india so that comes through <laughs> the uh you know the molecular pipeline we have connected <laughs> under our house like all this stuff like it's just a cool thought um
0: i'd love to see you know, but in that case though the molecular the thing would just generate that special species of wood
1: Oh, and maybe, yeah, because it would have to Molecules would bind less. together
0: however they would and bind so you'd together You'd pay for
1: generic product. matter. <laughs> you'd just, like, you'd buy, like, a, get a matter. Like, Amazon would just be supplying matter um, to your uh, see, house. that's
0: the thing, though. You can't create matter from nothing, so where does it come from? I don't know.
1: Uh, you'd have to destruct things that were, like, toxic, you I would say. You would
0: have assume, to have, you know? like, a, uh, uh, some... Thing in the back in your backyard, I guess, like fuel of some kind, anyway. All right, I just you want to say totally this has been common. my
1: favorite conversation on the podcast yet. Yeah, I think <laughs> but, we should uh, do a start we we're Tying Trek it podcast. back
0: together, though, be- tie it all back together, tie it all back together because essentially there's software there that would build that thing, and yeah. that to me is like no different. Because maybe the only difference in that scenario would be you have to have some software to deliver the, the stuff, right? Yeah, but you know, Hardware. the, the you know in the case of a of a guitar you still have to have the wood you have to do these things you have to design it you have to prototype it you you have a physical thing and you're doing all this stuff instead of typing code but um you know that is no different than what how we do how we do you know in UX design for instance we can take a piece of paper and draw a thing and create like a, a physical paper prototype of an interface and like it's very similar i see a lot of similarities the only difference there is like creating hundreds of copies of that guitar yeah right versus versus one instance of of a uh, software that everyone just kind of logs into right on, bro. um but you know you get rid of that there you go you got you got your uh you got your this is one thing what do you call that though it's no longer hardware what's it called
1: matter where <laughs> i don't know
0: <laughs> whatever it is all right werewolf I think we're... <laughs> we're tapped out Doug uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode does Doug like Star Trek though or is he a Star Wars fan
1: you know I don't know if I've ever ever asked him I don't want to know because he's my friend I don't don't want to know know, and I'll have to to stop being his friend
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right Doug well if you're listening just fly to us yeah um and make sure you uh, catch up on all all
1: no 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 no. so actually he started watching the um original series Okay. And I was like, bro, like, I, I told you, going to the original series is like, like, that's some pretty serious Star Trek nerddom. Like, start with it's a next generation, baby. Just start with Star Start with, with second season. Second season, second, third season. Let's be honest. Second season is a little rough, too. Um, I like,
0: maybe even like, skip the first few few episodes. So
1: yeah, that. he's he's giving it a shot. So yeah, I can say that. Uh, this is mostly a Doug episode, it turns out. All it right.
0: That's anything. all right. Doug's probably the only one that listens anyway. That's probably true. Um, all right, cool. Well, so that's all I got, Derek.
1: That's it for me, too.
0: Hot damn. All right, everybody. Well, in that case, check us out at RetroTimePodcast.com. Get yourself some stickers, RetroTimePodcast.com slash stickers. Derek, have you been tweeting? I do. You've I tweet, tweet, I
1: respond, I reply. RP responds.
0: All right. So we got we got some little uh, stuff going on. I, I don't even log in. This I, I have no idea. I wouldn't even know if I'm you, were enjoying doing. It. you could totally be lying to me. I have no idea. Um, sure. So check us out, RetroTimePod at RetroTimePod on Twitter. You could chat with Derek. Old Mister Siebert's out there tweeting away, mm-hmm. tweet tweet. Um, and if you get him excited enough, maybe he'll start a, t- uh, a TikTok. We'll do Retro Time TikTok.
1: Ooh, uh,
0: videos. That's good um, <laughs> I actually have no desire to do <laughs> that. Sure uh, if you want to do it, Derek, go for it. I don't I'll, know how it I'll works. allow it. Uh, check us out, retrotimepodcast.com slash stickers. Get yourself some stickers and check us out uh, on those reviews. Write us, write a five star review. And Derek will write you your very own review jam. I'll do it. He'll do it, and that's no joke. We're waiting for you. All we needed somebody to just leave a five star review. <laughs> that's it. Let's do it. Derek and I left our own five star reviews, <laughs> which, um, you know, full disclosure, we did it. Yeah. But you know, now we have. It's like, what nine, five. Well, five, like it's like putting a, putting a couple dollars in the tip jar,
1: you know, to make it look like, like other see, You see the tip jar. Yeah, I see the tip doing. jar. Oh, all all other people we're are just giving them the tip jar. Yeah, other people are giving them money. I might as well. <laughs> Yeah, that thing.
0: <laughs> Look at all those reviews. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I bet you can't tell which one are mine and Derek's. Um, anyway, if you go check de- us de- out. De-
1: which de- everyone's talking about how handsome we are. That's the one we did. <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right, I'm done. Not everything else.
1: All right, me too, man. Take it easy, guys. Right. See you You know what's funny? I I, I sniff. I sniff. And I, I always do something with my face. I don't need to. You just sniff. Like that.
0: I'm sniffing. Well, instead I go. What do you do instead with your face? Well, I think if you do that, the reason why you move your nose sometimes is it like closes one of the nostrils and it gets more of sucking vacuum in the other nostrils. So it's like, you know, it's like when you blow your nose, you cover one nostril so that you could blow more out of each nose. It's pretty gross.